Be still my soul. Friends, we often sing that song primarily in times of trials or at the funeral service. And we sing it in hope that when the, when the tears are gone, we have a hope that we will see each other. Well, I encourage you to open the book of Ecclesiastes to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I'll be reading from verse 10 all the way to chapter 7, verse 14. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Uh, if, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible with you home. Uh, we would love for you to have it. You may find this passage on page number 556 in our Pew Bibles. Let's open there and, and, and prepare our hearts to hear God's Word read. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what, man, what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may, find, may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. 
this is a word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to align our hearts to your wisdom. Help us to receive your wisdom, to cherish it, embrace it. We pray that you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit who is present among us right now. And we pray that you would do so for the glory of the name of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, last week we, uh, we have been challenged by Ecclesiastes to enjoy God's daily provisions. We saw that last week that we have a tendency in our hearts not to be satisfied with the things that we have, not to be satisfied with our resources. And we saw that that lack of satisfaction comes from the fact that our hearts and our affections are set on loving money and possessions. And because of that set of affections, because our affections are set on loving money and, and possessions, we are actually deprived of the ability to be satisfied with what we have. And the only way for us to, to, to change that is to, to actually turn our affections and our hearts away from the created things and away to the Creator. And when we do that, God Almighty enables us to be satisfied with what we have. Well, that was last week. The day, the passage, takes a different turn, takes a turn in a different direction. From enjoying God's daily provisions, as we saw last week, to wisdom for the day of adversity. What happens when things don't go well? How should we think about the reality of trials and sorrows and death when such experiences knock at the, at the doors of our lives? We have a tendency to question, to revolt, to dispute. We're, we're, we're quick to tell God what should happen rather than accept that everything comes to us from His hand. On this background of our human inclination to revolt against sorrow, to dispute with our Creator, the book of Ecclesiastes, a preacher of Ecclesiastes, challenges us not to dispute with our Creator. Challenges us to have a, a different framework than our natural inclinations are when things go bad. Now, some of us this morning might be in the midst of adversity. Some of us this morning are in the middle of a crisis. You know it. You feel it. It's hard. You feel disillusioned. Some among us might be on the aftermath of a crisis. It just happened, and you're still bewildered. You might still be surprised or shocked or un not, not confused what to do with what has just happened. Others might be might have had a, a crisis in a long past, distant past, but you're still affected by the adversity, by the trials that have happened. Some of us may not be in a crisis right now. Things are going pretty well. Things are looking smooth and sweet. Friends, sooner or later, adversity will knock on your door as well. Don't be caught by surprise for that day. This morning, let's look and see how the book of Ecclesiastes challenges us to approach the day 
of adversity. Prepare your mind to know how to respond to it when it happens. Don't let yourself be caught by surprise. So the the title of my message this morning from this passage is Wisdom for the Day of Adversity. I'd like for us to consider three things from this passage that we read. Three things that that help us frame an attitude of, of, of wisdom for the day of adversity. Here's the first consideration. Here's the first consideration. Consider our limitations. Consider our limitations. Look at verse 10 in chapter 6. By the way, those of you who are visiting, hope you keep your Bibles open. We like to go to Scripture and, uh, and get our stuff from it. Look to verse 10 in chapter 6. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now, the idea of, of giving something a name means showing its character and identity. In this verse, the preacher tells us that the world we live in has its identity and character already established, already set. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Remember Adam in the garden? God created all the animals, and God asked Adam to name him. The naming of things has been, has been done. The world we live in has been set. Not only that, but man himself. What is man? is already known. There's going to be no surprises to what is going on with mankind, with humanity. We cannot change the nature of man, nor can we pretend to be what we're not. This is what verse 10 is saying. But why is it saying that? Why is it saying that what has been named, uh, what has come to be has already been named, and what is known to man is already known? Why is he saying that? In order to point to the conclusion of verse 10, which is that man cannot dispute with one stronger than he. In other words, mankind cannot dispute. With who? Who's the one he cannot dispute with? Who's the one stronger than man? Well, verse 10 is silent to this question. But if you keep reading the text, and the way this, this text is leading us to answer this question, we'll see clearly it is God. God is stronger than man. Man cannot dispute with God. Now, true that man's inclination in the face of suffering and death is to dispute with God. Have you heard people say questions like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to such person? They don't deserve it. They've been such good people. Yeah, the terrorists or yeah, the evil people deserve those bad things to happen to them, but, but a good person? Why is it happening? There's a tendency in the human heart to dispute with our Creator about the way things should be. Right? Have you ever done that? Can you think about something in your life that you might be actually right now in a dispute with God right now over something? Some of us have open disputes with God right now that have not been resolved. The book of Ecclesiastes has some wisdom for us. Verse 11 exposes our tendency to speak many words, especially in the context of of disputing with God. Wouldn't you notice it? When we have something that we don't like and we have a reason to show 
what it should be like, we tend to have many words, don't we? We know what it should be instead of what it is. And the more words, verse 11 says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Friends, Ecclesiastes is putting before us the vanity of trying to dispute with someone stronger than us and using many words in that dispute. It brings us no advantage to, to dispute with God. Now, in order to drive things a little deeper and to show our, our human limitations, there are two questions that the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes puts before us in verse 12. Look at verse 12, the first question, For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life? Who knows what is good for man? Wow, that alone deserves its own sermon. Do you know what is good for man? Do you know what is good for you? We think we know what is good for us. We think we know what is right for humanity. Friend, just think and reflect how often, how often you think that you know what is best for you. Reflect on how unwilling you are to allow someone else to determine what is good for you. We have a tendency to assume that we are the best judges of ourselves, of our very lives. But Ecclesiastes will challenge this impression. The book of Ecclesiastes, our passage here, will challenge this assumption, as we will see in, verse, in chapter 7. The second question of this verse 12 is, um, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Even if man knew what is good for him, even if this was the case, reality is, can man know what will happen after he's gone? Is he able to look at life, including his life, from the vantage point of the future? He can't. Man is limited. Man is limited by his own experience. And our experience is not a good vantage point from which to determine what is good for us. The point of these two rhetorical questions is to shut every door of human wisdom. We need a better source for helping us understand what is truly good for us. Because, not, because we cannot look at our lives from the perspective of the future, we ourselves are not good sources for determining what is good for us. Friends, these verses at the end of chapter 6 aim to humble the pride of man and to teach man not to contend with his Maker and not to assume that He is a good judge of what is good for us. Well, after being confronted with this question of, of what is good for man, after considering the human limitations, Ecclesiastes presents us for what is better for us. Here's a second consideration as we look for wisdom for the day of adversity. Consider what is better. Consider what is better. Now, the first consideration of what is better, actually, we will see from, from verse 1 in chapter 7 to verse uh, 13, uh, a list of, of comparisons. And the comparisons have this phrase, it is better than. Better than. What is better? What is better? 
Well, the first one is not hard to figure out. Let's work on the first one. The first one says very clearly in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment in ancient times was very expensive. So here the preacher says it is better to have a good name or a good reputation, a good character, than to have a very expensive treasure or an expensive perfume, if you will. It's better to, to have a good reputation than to have an expensive fragrance. What good is it to smell good on the outside if your character, character or, or reputation is rotten? We get that. That's an easy one. Pretty straightforward. But everything else from this point on is going to shock us. Look at verse 1, half, second half of verse 1. Here's an interesting better. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Really? In what ways? This comparison is not as straightforward as the first one we just read. In our, in our human reasoning, we would rarely make this conclusion. We celebrate birthdays and try as much as we can to put off the day of death. We try to stay healthy and in shape. We try to do as much as everything we can to live happier and longer lives. And here the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Not only that, but this comparison of, of the day of, of death builds on the previous comparison. In other words, it's as if the Ecclesiastes says, just as a good name is better than precious ointment, so also the day of death is better than the day of birth. Let's unpack this. In what ways is a day of death better than the day of birth? One of the reasons given in our own text is another better given in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I think that, verse, that comparison gives us a, an extra reason or an, another reason to help us understand uh, the better of, of the day of death than the day of birth. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. As joyful as, our life, as the beginning of our life is, the way we end it is more important than the way we begin it. What good is it to start well but finish poorly? But the reality is, friends, that none of us actually, none of us start well. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is one of the important points that God reveals to us about ourselves. That even though God created us perfect in His image and likeness, mankind rebelled against God. Man disobeyed God in the garden. And because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the whole human race has been, has been dragged into corruption, has been enslaved by, by corruption. And therefore, every human being who's, who's born on this planet is actually born with a corrupted nature, a nature bent towards rebellion against our Creator, a nature bent towards sin and, and rebelliousness. Oh, friends, we are born in sin. Our free will is bent towards rebellion. The question is, if we're born in this way, will we die the same way? 
If we're born in this way, will we die the same way? Oh, friends, there's many who just put their hopes in, in their beginnings, but do not consider carefully how they plan to finish their life. The Bible says about humanity that we are born in sin. But for those who repent of their sin, for those who ask God to save them from their sin, for those who trust in Christ to be the means of their salvation, for those who turn to God in repentance and faith in Christ, for them, their death is a death, a dying in the Lord. For them, their death is, is a moment of actually experiencing and coming face to face with their Creator, no longer as an enemy, but as a father. For them, the day of death is a day of gain. That's why for Christians, the day of death is truly better than the day of birth. Friend, I wonder this morning if, if you were to die soon, would your day of death be better than your day of birth? Have you repented of your sin and trusted Christ to save you from the wrath to come? Have you asked God to do that for you? Perhaps you have grown in, in a church and religious background all your life. Perhaps you have been in church all your life and you know all the truths of the Bible and are pretty confident in your spiritual well-being. Let me ask you, can you say for yourself this morning that the day of death is better than the day of your birth? Let me give you several reasons why, for Christians, the day of death is better than the day of birth. The first reason is the day of death is a day when our faith becomes sight. So far in our lives here on earth as Christians, we live by faith. We have heard of God's revelation. We haven't seen God face to face, but we have heard of His Word. And God has enabled us to believe Him. And so everything in our lives right now is a walk, a journey with God by faith. We're convinced that it's true, even though we don't have scientific, if you will, palpable proof right now in our hands to, to prove it. There is a faith in us that, be, that makes us believe that what we heard with our ears is true about God. The day of death will be the day in which everything we have believed will become sight. At that moment, friends, we can bring all the scientific evidences for the existence of God, and they will prove to be accurate and positive. But it will be a little too late to wait for that day to get the scientific evidence for the existence of God. We're called today to believe in Him. When we die, our, our faith, our walk with God will be by sight. Faith will no longer be needed. So that's one of the reasons why the day of death for a believer is better than the day of birth. Another, another reason is because the day of death, not only will we see God face to face, we will be with Him. We will be in His presence. To be reunited with our Creator is far better from, for us 
than anything we can experience in this fallen world. Friends, this is the reason why when we participate at the funeral of a Christian, yes, there is sorrow. Yes, there is separation. Yes, there is a lack of human fellowship, of common experiences, of companionship. All of that will be gone, but only for a while. Mixed with that sorrow, there's a rejoicing that the person who died has died in the Lord. For them, for them their death is a better day. And one day, our day, will, our day of death will bring them with them and with our Lord together. That's why the day of death is better for the Christian than the day of birth. But here's another better, a next set of better. Thinking about death is, and sorrow is better than partying. Even if, you, if you, even if you're not there in the moment of death, if you, even if the day of death has not come for you, thinking about death and sorrow is better than partying. Really? Explain this one. Well, look at, look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. We would rather go to a party. Let's be honest. This more, be honest with, with yourself and, and, and the Lord. If you had to choose between going to a funeral or to a party, which one would you choose? To a party. It's all right. At least, at least in church, be honest, right? So in what way, in what way is a preacher of Ecclesiastes telling us it is better to go to a house of mourning, even though we, we don't think so? In what way is it? Look at verse, look at verse 4, second part of verse 4. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, a funeral service reminds us all of where this earthly life is going. We all know that it's going to end in death. We know that. That's going to be no surprise. But we try to put that thought aside. We try not to think about that. The book of Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 it's, it's good for you to think about that. It's actually better for you to go to a house of, of mourning because you will be forced to think about that. And when you think about it, hopefully you will lay it to heart. And when you lay it to heart, it will do you a lot of good. That's why it is good for you to go to a house of mourning. Friends, death brings us to think about life. Going to a funeral service and thinking about death makes us think about life differently. And that's why it's good for us. Think about it. If you knew exactly how many days or weeks or months or years you still had to live on earth, would that affect the way you live? If you knew how much time you have left, would you live differently in the present? That's the point. Think often about the fact that we're mortal. And let that thought actually change you and help you live better in the present in light of that experience. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Again, really? This is so counterintuitive. Here's the reason. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Another way to translate this phrase is to say, by sadness of face, the heart is put right. By sadness of face, the heart is put right. In other words, 
A man who has looked death in the face may have his inner life transformed for the better, as one commentator said. The comparison of verse 4 helps us understand this point that it's truly the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, in the house of feasting. This is why sorrow is better than laughter. The man who is only thinking about partying and fun life will never get to reflect well on the real meaning of life. He will not be prepared to, to, to face the deeper questions of life. He will not be prepared to face the reality of adversity. Laughter does not lead us to ask the uncomfortable questions of life. Laughter and parting does not lead us to ask the uncomfortable and hard questions of life. That's why it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. That's why the house, the, the, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning than in the house of, of mirth. Oh, friend, I pray that you would be encouraged by this to realize that the world we live in is actually pursuing and doing everything it can to keep us occupied and not to think about the deeper issues of life. Here's another set of better. Here's another set of betters. Friends, I hope I, by now you're probably, you're like, I get it. I get it. This is not the better I would choose for myself. Here's another one. Uh, it's, we're not done yet. Um, being rebuked by the wise is better than the song of fools. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. My friends, no one likes to be rebuked or corrected. Not even, friends, not even between spouses, when a spouse, when a wife or husband uh, re- corrects the other or rebukes the other, it's, it's uncomfortable. It, you know, I, I still don't like it when my wife brings those comments to me. And we've been married for 10 years, almost. I still don't like it when, when someone I love so much corrects me, let alone when others who don't, may not love me as much. We, we are not people bent towards receiving correction well. It's part of our rebellion nature. We like to be ourselves. We like to think that the way we are is the best way. So here's, here's another better. It is better to be rebuked by the wise than to hear the songs or the song of the, of the fools. And in verse 6, we're given a picture of how transient the laughter of fools is. The fool is the one who tries, by the way, the fool is the one who tries to live life apart from God. The man who thinks of life superficially, avoiding to ask the deeper questions of life. Such people might be all about the fun, all about the experience of the moment, all about the the pleasure of the day. The Ecclesiastes compares the, the laughter, the song, the entertainment of the fools with burning thorns underneath a pot. It does not last very long. Thorns burn quickly. So is the song of fools. So is the entertainment of those who who seek to live life apart from God. That's why it is better to see the company of the wise, even, even if you might be rebuked in it. Now, let me apply this in a way that uh, makes sense and, and refers to us as a corporate entity. We can apply it personally in all kinds of ways, but I'd like to apply it for us as a church. There are people who want to go to church, and when they look for a church, they look for a church that will only encourage them. 
and only keep them happy and optimistic. They don't want to go to a church that um, actually will bring up their sin and confront them with their sin or challenge them or even rebuke them. They don't want to go to a church that actually addresses the reality of our rebellion nature. We would rather go to services, to churches that keep us happy, encouraged, that just gets our dose of, of encouragement for, for the next week and, and just keeps us, keep us afloat and optimistic about life in general. Friends, we should want to be in churches that care enough about us to tell us the truth even when it hurts. We should want to be in, in churches that, that say the truth of God, even the, the parts in which God rebukes His people and rebukes us so that we might be corrected and we might actually change the course of our lives and align ourselves to His ways. It's better for us to be rebuked, even as Christians, than to be in a church that only will speak about the positives and never address things that need to be confronted. It is better to be rebuked by a wise God than to be entertained with the false hopes of optimistic preaching. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that? For those of you who are visiting us this morning, we're so glad that you're with us. We pray that the Lord leads you to find, a, if you're looking for a home church, to, to find a church that is preaching the gospel, that is focusing on the Word of God and, and, and committed to expound the Word of God. But as you look for churches and what you should join and be committed to, just consider, are, are churches, the churches you consider, will they speak for God, not only in, the, in giving hope and encouragement and comfort, but also in giving rebuke and admonishment? Friends, our wise God wants to discipline His children so that we might be better in reflecting His holiness and character. When you look for a church, look for a church who is not afraid to bring up the rebuke of a wise God. It's better for us to be in those kind of churches. <laughs> alas, better. Alas, better that I'd like to bring to you. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. We've already looked at it in, in brief earlier, but notice that there's another comparison tied to this one in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, why are these two connected? Why are these two comparisons connected at this point? Well, in order to end well, we need patience. Especially when we face adversity. How easy it is for us to be okay when things go well. But when they don't go well, we become impatient. We become quick-spirited. We become angry. This, tells, this text tells us, that the lack of patience is a fruit of pride. The lack of patience is a fruit of pride. The impatient person reveals his pride. He wants his way in his timing right away. Oh, friends, realize impatience is not just a character personality trait. It's a heart flaw. Impatience it's not just a character or personality trait. It's a heart flaw. A proud heart manifests itself through impatience, through lack of forbearing with one another, 
Notice what else we're told about patience. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Pride leads to impatience. Impatience leads to anger, and anger characterizes the fools. Patience is a fruit of humility. Impatience and anger is a fruit of pride, of being irritated with God and His ways. In, ve- in verse 10, we are told not what not to say. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It's a great question. Have you ever heard people say, the good old days were better? People can say that about their own personal lives. People can say that about our nation. People can say that about the world. The world used to be a better place. Really? Have you read about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible? Have you read about what Corinth was going through? Don't say the old were better. The good old days were better than, than, than the present days. Uh, some people use that phrase to, to refer to the life of the church. Sometimes you know, people think, well, when we were bigger, when things weren't better. Don't say that the good old days were better than the present. It doesn't help. Actually, look at, look at what the, the wise uh, preacher of Ecclesiastes says. Don't do that. Here's why not. Verse 10, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There are people who cannot enjoy the present because their affections are still on the past. They're so attached to what has happened in the past, they cannot enjoy the present, especially if the present is not as good as the past. Now, why do people look to the good old days? Why do they prefer to go back into time to some other better days? One of the reasons why people do that is because they might be lacking the patience to deal with the present. One's attitude to look only to the past could reveal lack of patience in the present. In other words, in this entire passage, the preacher is trying to help us get an appreciation for the present. How can the life of faith live the present when the present is not as good as the past? How can the life of faith live the present when the present is not as good as the past? Well, the one thing you should not do is do not say the good old days were better. If things are difficult in the present, it is no real help to try to go back to the past. We need to ask God to give us patience in the present as we look forward to the future. All these were were contrasts of what is better. Would you agree that you would have not said, you would have not said at the beginning of this service that these things are better? Would you say that? And yet this is what the Bible says us, tell, tells us. What's the alternative? What's a, if, 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 we're, if we have considered our human limitations and we have considered what is better and our ways are not God's ways, and we have just been reminded of that, then what is indeed better? What is the third consideration we should consider? Consider the way of wisdom. Wisdom is an advantage. The alternative to the ways of the fool's is to take the path of wisdom, not human wisdom, which is limited and, based, limit, limited and based on human experience. We need a different wisdom that is able to look at our life and our world from the perspective of the future. Let that wisdom shed light on our present. Throughout this passage, the preacher considered the laughter of the fools, 
the heart of the fools being attached only with partying, only with fun and singing and entertainment. Wisdom, however, protects us from following the path of the fools. The fools are, are guided only by their feelings, by their immediate experiences, by the neglect of the ways of God. Wisdom is willing to take the path of careful thinking, of asking the deeper questions of life, of facing death and sorrow. True wisdom does not escape trials, not even the trials of the present, not even the trials that are difficult, things like death and, and, and sorrow. They are good for us. God allows them in our hearts because they have the ability to do good to our hearts when we apply them to us. The wisdom of the preacher speaks, the wisdom that the preacher speaks of in this text has several qualities. In verse 12, the protection of wisdom. Wisdom protects. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Oh, friends, choosing the way of wisdom, not human wisdom, but divine wisdom, not only protects our lives, it also preserves our life. The way of wisdom, of God's wisdom, is to recognize our human limitations as we've already seen. The way of wisdom recognizes a divine counsel. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Friends, you cannot change the way God made this world. We cannot change the fact that God has pronounced a curse upon the world because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. That's how God made it. We cannot change that way. Instead of trying to argue with God, in trying, instead of trying to dispute with Him, trying to be, instead of trying to be angry with Him, what should we do? What should wisdom, what does wisdom lead us to do? Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. This is the way of wisdom. The aim of this passage is to show us that divine wisdom encourages us and encourages people as they go through suffering to show their trust in the sovereign God. This is the attitude of true wisdom, an attitude of trust, joyfulness when God blesses us with the good things, trust when God allows a day of adversity to come at us. We trust in the sovereign hand of God, even when it's painful and hard. Friend, does that describe you? True wisdom enables us to receive the good with joy and, ac and accept the adversity with trust, that it comes from the hand of God. Remember how this passage started with two rhetorical questions. For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who knows what is good for man? The answer is, it is God. Trust Him. He knows what will happen after your life on earth will be over. We don't know. He knows. He knows the future. We don't. So trust Him in the present. He can guide you in the present because He knows the future. Trust Him. Don't argue with Him. Don't dispute your case with Him. Trust Him. Receive from His hand both the days of joy and the days of sorrow. 
Don't dwell on the past. Instead, let your heart, like a, trust, like a childlike trust in his parents, trust your life in the hands of God. God is in the present. He knows what is best for you. So consider human limitations. Consider what is best for us. Consider the way of his wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your truth equips us, encourages us, challenges us, even rebukes us to be prepared for the day of adversity. Father, help us to relate to you in an appropriate manner. Help us not think of ourselves as if we are in the seat of judgment, as if we are the ones who determine what is good for us. Even when we relate to the experiences of life, and even when we relate to you, help us to realize that everything comes from you. Help us to receive it from you, not only with joy, but with trust. We pray that you would be honored in the lives of your people when they go through adversity. We pray this in the name of Christ. What an encouragement. <clears throat>